Okay, I think we're ready to begin again. If you want to find seats. <clears throat> nice. But it's a little less than five minutes now. Um, couple of uh, share with you a couple of things that were brought to my attention in between. The first one I think is the most important. I misspoke. Uh, David's, or sorry, see, I misspoke again. Peter's denials. I I uh, said they were in Matthew 25, and they're actually in Matthew 26. Uh, if you're taking notes, I, I gave you the wrong chapter. I apologize for that. And the second comment I thought was really good, and I, as he said, I, I touched on it, but I want to emphasize it a little bit because I think he's right. I think it needs to be emphasized. When we talked about God's love, we talked about that... Uh, God is love. Okay, God is love. And we talked about practicing love on our behalf. We've got to work at it because it's not necessarily natural. And the comment that was made was that love can't be just in the actions. And I agree with that 100%. Love can't be just in the actions. It has to be in the motivation and the intent. Uh, I think that's what... Uh, I think that's one of the things we can learn from 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses. That that the love that we show to others, it can't just be an on-the-surface love. It has to be a purpose within us. It has to be who we are, not just what we do. And I appreciated that comment, and I agree 100% with that comment. Uh, so I wanted to emphasize that a little bit. Um. <clears throat> I want to spend a little time continuing on the idea of the faithfulness of God. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about David. David writes something in Psalm 86. If you want to turn to the 86th Psalm. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. Oh God, be proud... Sorry, O God, the proud have risen up against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. And I know that that verse is within itself, just in the text, doesn't say anything really about the faithfulness of God specifically, but all of those concepts of who God is and his reaction to mankind in those ways is all about the faithfulness of God. It's all about the confidence that we can have in God to fulfill what he said he will do. Another comment that was brought up to me, and I really liked it, was that in the end, God always fulfills his promises. We'll actually talk about this a little bit later, but God always fulfills his promises. It just depends on which end of the promise we're going to be receiving. Are we going to be receiving the blessing he has promised, or are we going to be receiving the penalty that he has promised? That part is up to us, but God will always fulfill his promise. Now, David, I want you to think about David and his life. Okay, David, when he was a young man, he was chosen by God to be the next king. When 
nobody else, including Samuel, who was supposed to be the doing the anointing for God, even Samuel, nobody paid any attention to him. He was he was a nobody. Nobody gave him a second thought as far as being king. But he got an, he was anointed by Samuel because of God's instruction to be the next king. But then he had to wait some 15 years for that to come to fruition. He had to wait on that promise of God for 15 years. Now again, I'm not going to, I don't know that we need to wait for the mic to go around, but what were some of the challenges that David faced during those 15 years of waiting to become king? Saul's trying to kill him. Chasing him all over the country and other countries. He was constantly under direct fire of the enemies of Israel, too. Not only did Saul and his army pursue David, but the enemies pursued David. Even when he tried to run to another country for safety, sometimes he couldn't find safety, or sometimes... Like in one instance, he had to pretend to be insane so that the enemy would not view him as a threat. He lost his best friend. He can no longer go talk to and hang out with Jonathan anymore. That relationship is over. There's one more I'm thinking of. Discouragement. He lost his wife. It was just over and over and over again. And I want you to think too about when David had to face Goliath. Why did why did it fall to David to face Goliath? Why didn't somebody else do it? Because they were afraid. They did not have confidence in the promises of God. David, however, did. He had 15 years plus, even going back to his days as a younger boy, as a shepherd, fighting off the sheep, fighting off the or fighting off the, the bear, fighting off the lion, protecting the sheep. He had all that time to learn about firsthand about the faithfulness of God, and that time wasn't easy. It was a time of trial, it was a time of humility. It's time of difficulty, multiple tests, one after the other. But David maintained his relationship with God the whole time. We don't have anything about David having any issues in his relationship with God. Now, there was one time when he almost did. When was that? Remember that? He almost did something God would not have been pleased with. Nabal, because of his own pride and anger, he almost went and killed Nabal and his family. And Abigail talked him down off the cliff. Abigail brought him to his senses, and he praised her for saving his relationship with God, protecting his relationship with God, because he was supposed to be waiting 
waiting on the promise of God for him to be king to be fulfilled. But once he became king, everything went perfect, right? No. What are some of the things that we know about? I'm sure there's things we don't know about. But what are some of the things we know about that David did wrong while he was king? Bathsheba, that's the big one that we think about all the time. Took a census. What? Discipline is his children. He didn't seem to be didn't seem to be a very good father as far as discipline goes. Teaching them respect. David made many, many mistakes as king. But during these times, God still loved David. I want you to remember that. God still loved David. There were still consequences for his sin. But God continued to keep the promises that he made to David, even when David fell. Because David always came back. Because even when David, for a short period of time, forgot about the promises of God, when reminded about them and when he realized what he had done on multiple occasions, he came back to God. The situation with David, Bathsheba, and Uriah is the one we most often think about, so let's think about it some more. He committed adultery. To cover it up, he tried to be deceitful. When that didn't work, he had Uriah murdered. And then out of the loving kindness of his heart, he invited Bathsheba in. All of this may have fooled some of the people, but it didn't fool some of his older children. Have you noticed that? Some of his older children, I think, were old enough, especially the the boys, they were old enough to know what was going on and understand what happened. And they were not fooled by the deceitfulness that David put forward after that. And it caused him a lot of problems later on. But God also was not deceived. God is not deceived. He will not be mocked. Yet God knew exactly what was going on. And so he sends him Nathan the prophet. And when Nathan the prophet comes, he explains to David, God still loves you. God still is fulfilling his promises to you. God has already forgiven you, but there's still going to be a consequence. There's still going to be consequences of your sin. The son was going to die. There was going to be violence in his family for generations. There were still consequences. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51, now this this beginning part of this is not necessarily inspired, but it is uh, what the ancient Jews believed about this psalm, about who wrote it, about when it was written. And I think think we can have some confidence in that. It, It says to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is what is going through David's mind when he has realized, because Nathan came and talked to him, when he's realized the sin that he has committed. 
this is what is going through David's mind when he is sitting by the bedside of his dying son. This is what's going through his mind when his, his men come and tell him the child is dead and he gets up and washes himself and goes and worships God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me known, make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. David was counting. He was dependent. He was begging God for faithfulness, for the faithfulness to forgive him. He promised that he would forgive him if he came back to him. And David is counting on that, begging for that. He's counting on God to blot out his sins. He's trusting in that promise. But that did not prevent him from acknowledging the sin that he had committed. Even though because Nathan came and told him about it, he knew that God knew about the sin. But that did not prevent him from acknowledging it acknowledging that to God and begging God for forgiveness. And he was looking forward, looking forward to the hope that God promised to those that are obedient to him. I love what he says in verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. The punishments that you've put on me, Lord, Help me to get through them. He tried to change God's mind about the death of his son, but God would not relent. That doesn't make God an evil God. It just makes God a fulfiller of the promises he will make. David needed to learn that lesson. 
So what separates God's abounding love and faithfulness from everyone and everything else? What makes God different? He loves us unconditionally. No matter what we do, God still loves us. He proved that through his son. This is different than human love. God did something for me before I ever did anything for him. The other thing that separates God from us is that his, he will always keep his promises. Again, no matter what we do, God will be faithful to his promise. If we do well, he promises a reward. If we do not do well, he promises a consequence. Do those two statements sound familiar? That's been true since Adam and Eve. That's exactly what he told Cain. This is something we teach our children. If you do this, you get this reward. If you do this, you'll have this consequence. We teach it to our children, but sometimes we as adults fail to understand that. We fail to understand that God is going to deal with us the exact same way. If God promises something, both heaven and hell, he will complete it. It doesn't matter whether it takes a year or it takes a thousand years. He will see it through to the end. In Psalm 15, in Psalm 15, this was read, uh, this was read the other day, so I won't read the whole thing. This is talking about a righteous person and what characteristics they have, characteristics of the godly. I want you to notice specifically the last half of verse 4. That's the part that is germane to our discussion about the faithfulness of God. David writes, A godly man, a righteous man, is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is the person that makes a promise, makes a commitment, makes a promise, and when it kind of backfires, what do we tend to do? We give up on the promise. We choose not to fulfill it or just forget about it. Move on. Pretend like we never made that promise. But David says that a righteous person, one that is trying to follow God, will never relent on a promise. When they make a promise, they will do everything in their power to fulfill it. Now, we are not God. God has powers and capabilities and characteristics that we do not have. So when God makes a promise, he will absolutely, under all circumstances, fulfill that promise, regardless. There are times when I make a promise that it becomes impossible for me to fulfill that promise. That can happen. I can make a promise to one of my children to go fly kites on Thursday. And Thursday, there is a massive thunderstorm that comes through. And I don't feel like being like Benjamin Franklin. 
I am not interested in going and flying kites in the wind and the storm and the thunder and the lightning. It's not safe. It would not be good. So I can't keep that promise. But what I what can I do? I can amend that promise so that what I promised can still be fulfilled. We can go a different day. Now there are much more. That's kind of a silly little example, but I just want you to think about that. There are situations where we may not be able to fulfill a promise. I promise to somebody that I'm going to be at such and such a place at such and such a time on such and such a day to do a certain thing. And on the way there, my car breaks down. And I absolutely cannot get there. That's when we need the grace and mercy of our brethren to be forgiving and understanding. But when at all times when possible, we should be like God. We should swear to something, promise something. And even if if it is to our own hurt, even if it is not beneficial for me, I should still be willing to make every attempt I can to fulfill that promise. Now, I'll give you a sense of timing. That's where I thought we'd be done at the end of the first hour. So I'm going to pause right there and see if there are any comments or questions uh, that anybody wants to give. My plan was to do that at the end of the first hour, but we didn't make it that far. Okay. Still too hot for him to want to talk. All right. Um, Let's go to Lamentations. Lamentations, verse 3, or chapter 3, sorry. See where I'm at. Okay. Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah did not have an easy life, did he? He had lots of trials. People were trying to kill him. He had lots of enemies. He had lots of difficult circumstances and situations that he had to go through. Some of them laid on him by God. And in that process, he writes this book. It's a book of about his despair, about his feeling, about how he's dealing with all these issues. And we're not going to take the time. I planned on taking the time and, and going through and looking at the entire chapter, but we're just going to have to summarize a little bit. In verses 1 through 18, Jeremiah expresses his despair. He expresses his difficulties that he's having, the problems that he's experiencing, and the despair, the, the depression, really, that he's feeling because of those. Jeremiah had some very, very difficult trials. And so in verse nine, verses 19 through 24, he gives a plea. He begs God for mercy and faithfulness. I'll just go ahead and read those verses, starting in verse 19. 
Remember my affliction and roaming, and wormwood and gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the, the, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Those of you that know the song that's based on this passage is one of my favorite songs. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah is confident that God has not forgiven him. Forgotten him. Sorry, I misspoke. God has not forgotten him. He has hope that God will remember him and will fulfill his promises, will be faithful to him. And so Jeremiah, because he's had all these problems, all these trials, all these tests, all these difficulties in his life, he gives some really excellent advice on how on how to count on the faithfulness of God. Starting with verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. This is some advice that I should listen to more often. Eat dirt, Doug. Put your mouth in the dust. Stop talking. Stop complaining. And just go with it. Have confidence and faithfulness in God that he will see his promises. Since God is merciful, we only need to wait on God's timing. We only need to wait on his timing to bless us. My grandmother, my dad's mom, she had a, well, she was a one-room school teacher, and I'm sure she came up with this saying during that time. Understanding the situation a one-room school teacher back in the day would have been in. She had a saying, The Lord gave you two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in proportion. I should listen twice as much as I talk. That's hard for me. I need to not complain. When I'm going through a trial or an issue or a situation, don't complain about it. Just do everything you can to deal with it. Don't worry about it. Let God handle it. Look at, uh, let's see. Verse 31, starting in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Nor does he afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. God does not want to cause us grief or difficulty. That is not his primary goal. When God tests us, 
When God lays some trial on us, it is not for the purpose of making our lives difficult. I want you to think about this. There are a few reasons why we might be going through some difficulty or trial. One reason is it might be our own doing. My own sin might be leading to the difficult circumstance or maybe even the chastisement of God. It might be the sin of some of those I'm close to. Sometimes it's just the sin of people around me that will cause me a problem. Some is the sin of people I have never known. I may in some way be affected negatively by the sin of somebody that I've never met and never will meet. Some of our difficulties is simply the loss of the physical paradise that God intended for man. This world in its current state is not where God wanted man to have to live out his life. He wanted us to be able to live in that paradise of Eden. So illness, disease, natural disasters, God doesn't necessarily want us to have to deal with those. And yes, sometimes God is testing us. Sometimes God is testing us. Even though Jeremiah laments at the events and situations that God put upon him, he still calls to mind, he still remembers, he still leans on God's great love and faithfulness as a source of hope. So what is the answer when we're going through trouble, when some calamity or misfortune comes upon us? What should we think when those around us attribute to or blame God for the problems in this world? I'm going to get on a little soapbox for a minute because this is a pet peeve of mine. Nobody down the hill and nobody up there can remember 9-11. Most of us here can, at least in some way. I remember after the towers were flown into, people saying and commenting, well, it must have been God's will. There was a school shooting down in Texas where a bunch of innocent children were murdered. As Rick said, if that doesn't bother you, I don't know what will. But there have been those that have said it must have been God's will. I reject that notion. I reject that notion. Because sometimes... Bad things happen to you and to me and to other people that are not their fault, not the fault of people they know, but is the fault, is the result of some sin that somebody else committed. Those children didn't die because they did something wrong or God wanted to punish them. Those children died because some individual rejected the love of God and chose to commit a sinful act. We have to be aware that sometimes bad things happen 
because of something else. So how are we to interpret God's everlasting love and and faithfulness in difficult circumstances? Well, I think Jeremiah gives us the answer. Verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? How can, how can I make something happen? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should the living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God toward in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. When we're undergoing some sort of a difficulty, some sort of a trial in our life, that is the time for self-reflection. That is the time for us to look inward and try to see if we can locate the cause of that difficulty. Did my own sin cause this? If my own sin caused this, then I need to make a change. I need to do something different. I need to repent of that sin. I need to change and ask God for forgiveness and then go on with my life. Is my difficulty or trial because of someone near me? Some decision or sin that they have? Well, then I might need to rethink my circle of friends. I might need to rethink the people that I have close around me. Or maybe I need to try to figure out how I can reach that person and help them understand that the sin in their life is not good. And it's not only causing them difficulty, it's causing others difficulty. And that they need to repent. Is it just sin in general? The sin of somebody I've never known? Or the result of the loss of the paradise God had intended for us? If that's the case, there's there's nothing I can do. I can't fix it. I can't make it better. So I need to suffer through it. I need to wait patiently on God without complaining. God does command tests and blessings, but God does not directly cause all difficulties. We can't always tell the difference. So who are we to complain? That's what Jeremiah says. Who are we to complain? Rebellious sinners. Rebellious sinners. We don't love completely. We break our promises. We are not always faithful. We are not always loving. Both tests and blessings are a time to consider our relationship with God. In bad times, could we do better? Is there something I can change? Is there somebody I can help to make a change? In good times, we have to understand that blessings are from God, not from my own goodness. I did not build that. I did not accomplish that. I did that with the help of God. I did that because God loves me. 
I did that because God is merciful to me. I'm in that situation because God is patient with me. In Luke chapter 22, In Luke chapter 22, we're back to uh, Jesus talking about uh, the three times that Peter is going to deny him. And Jesus says something here that, to me, is one of the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. Lots of passages in Scripture give me pause. This one is up there with the best of them. Verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Satan has asked for you. Is there another person in scripture we can think of that Satan asked for? Job's the first one we think of. This is not the first time this has happened. Do you think it was the last? Were there other people at this time that Satan was trying to tempt and test? Yeah, there were. All of the apostles, all of the disciples. If I understand it correctly, the you there in verse 31, Satan has asked for you. We would say Satan has asked for you all, or all of you. It's plural. Satan is trying to get to all of you, Peter. And when you have returned, that's singular. When you have returned. There were other apostles that were tested. Was Judas tested by the crucifixion of Christ? 100%. Was he successful in overcoming that test? No, he was not. What was his response to recognizing that he had failed Jesus? He gave up. He did not recall to mind the love and faithfulness of God. He did not remember that God loved him. Even though he had sinned, even though he had let Jesus down, God still loved him. He forgot that God was faithful to his promises, that if you repent, I will take you back. He forgot all of that, and it caused him to give up, and he killed himself. Peter fell, but he did not forget those things. He did not forget that God still loved him. He did not forget that God was still faithful to keep his promises. And so Peter, what was his reaction to realizing that he had done this sin? Scripture says he went out and wept bitterly. I think that's one of those understatements in the word. He wept bitterly. This shook him to his core. But he did not forget. He remembered the love of God. He remembered the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And he did not quit. He repented of that sin. 
And we see a completely different reaction of Peter the next time he is challenged in public by a mob for being a disciple of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, it's a completely different reaction. Because he did not forget the love and faithfulness of God. While we're speaking about those that were tested, John was tested too. John was tested the same way Peter and and Judas were. Where was John during the crucifixion? He was right there. Somewhere near the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother. He did not forget. Sometimes I think we forget about the love and faithfulness of God. It's easy when we mess up. It's easy when we sin to forget that God still loves us, that God is still faithful to keep his promises. Just a question to think about. Has Satan ever asked for you? If you're very old at all, there's probably a time if you are a follower of God. Satan doesn't have to ask for those that are outside of Christ. He's already got them. But if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in God, an obedient Christian, if you have lived very long past that time at all, there's been a time when Satan asked for you, I believe. How'd you do? Were you Peter? Were you John? Were you Judas? Did you succeed in the trial? Did you fail in the trial but come back to God? Or did you fail in the trial and give up? Lose sight of the love and faithfulness of God. Think about Israel. You're going to get the fast forward version now. Think of Israel. Some of their issues that Israel Israel faced were not caused by them. They didn't cause the slavery in Egypt. They didn't cause the fact that the wilderness had no food or water. Those situations that they found themselves in, they were not responsible for. But some, most actually, if you think about it, most of their issues were self-inflicted. It was because of their own sin. Wandering in the forty years for the forty years, the captivity and bondage that they had to go through, cycle after cycle after cycle, constant wars, that was their own doing, their own sin. So, how did God demonstrate His love and faithfulness to them? One, He gave them time to turn away from their progress towards sin. He gave them time to realize it and come back. He does that for us too. He gives us time. Every single day, every single hour, every minute is another opportunity to live with the promise of God's love and faithfulness. There's an old saying, um, yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is uncertain. Today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. 
today, this very day, is a gift from God for us to renew ourselves with him. Number two, he, he gave them time to turn away from their sin, but he never stopped loving them and inviting them to return, no matter how long it took. Years in some cases, he does that for us too. He, he wants us, invites us to come back. Whenever Number three, whenever they did turn their back to God, he took away the trial. He took it away. It doesn't mean he took away the consequence. But he took away the sin. David still lost his son. But God forgave him. That's the same for us. The children of Israel still had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Even though it appears that they did come back to him. I've often wondered what that 40 years would have been like for the younger generation. Those under the age of 20 that were not subject to the consequence? How many conversations do you think they had with their parents and grandparents and maybe great-grandparents when those older generations said, look, whatever God tells you to do, do it. Don't question him. I think that's why when they finally come around to Jericho, after 40 years of watching the older generations fall by the thousands in the wilderness. I think that's why when Joshua, when, when Joshua says, we're going to walk around it one day, one time a day for six days, and on the seventh day we're going to go seven times around, and when we shout, it's ours. That makes no sense whatsoever. But they were willing to do it. I think that's because of the example, of the understanding, the love, and the faithfulness of God that their, that their previous generations instilled in them. And no matter what happened, whatever trial that we're going through, whatever temptation we're facing, whatever difficulty we're having, even if it is something that is caused by God, for our learning, or for our chastisement. Even if it is caused by God, it was less than God could have done if he was not merciful. That's us. Whatever we're going through, it is less. The Israelites never received the full punishment that God could have meted out on them. Not until Jesus came and they rejected him. And then he dispersed Israel, physical Israel, forever. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul tells us if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's kind of a confusing passage, confusing verse. The word faithless there is the word apostéo. And it means to betray a trust, to be unfaithful, to have no belief, to disbelieve. In other words, to turn your backs on, to give up on. When we are faithless, when we turn our backs on God, God is faithful. That Greek word is the word pistos, and it means trusty, faithful, and this is an interesting one, can be relied on. 
Persons who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. When we are faithless, when we turn our backs on God, God is faithful. He will discharge his duties. He will keep his promises. This goes back to what we've already discussed. No matter what our decision about God, he will always love us and will always fulfill his promises. I understand the summation of that verse to be in the phrase, he cannot deny himself. God, with his power, knowledge, and consistency, will always do what he said he will do. If he sets up conditions for a blessing, the blessing will be given if if the conditions are met. The blessings will be denied if the blessings are not met, if the conditions are not met. He is faithful to his promise. If he sets up conditions for a consequence, the consequence will be given if the conditions are met for that consequence. But the consequence will be relented if the conditions are not met. Again, he is faithful to his promises. Whenever God relented from a punishment, it resulted in more time for those who were disobedient to turn back to him. Our decisions may change the way a promise of God is fulfilled, but he will always complete it. See what time it is. Ten minutes. In Numbers chapter 23, Balak wants desperately to have the Lord curse Israel, and Balaam wants to as well. They both have, they both have uh, interest in God cursing Israel. God, however, will not allow Balaam to speak anything other than his true word. Every time Balaam speaks, goes to speak anything about Israel, a blessing comes out of his mouth. And this gave both Balaam and Balak great frustration. In in, uh, chapter 23, verse 19, Balaam says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. I cannot change it. If God wants something to happen, man cannot stop it from happening. Now, God may choose a different way to make it happen. Remember with Israel, Moses is leading Israel, and a couple of different times, God is ready to kill everyone except for Moses and start over with him. God wasn't not going to fulfill his promise. He was going to find a different way to do it. God will always, always fulfill his promise. 
in uh, Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea writes, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. That's a bad position to be in, with God having a charge against you, having an accusation, having a crime that he feels you have committed, a sin that you have uh, progressed in. In this is the situation that Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, found themselves in with Hose- under, during the time of Hosea. They, God had a charge against them. Over in chapter 5, verse 15, God says, I will return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God is waiting. He's waiting to fulfill his promise. Promise. He's told them he will take them back, but they haven't accepted that yet. So he's waiting, waiting to fulfill his promise. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and former rain to the earth. Let's go back to God. Hosea says, let's go back to God. We can trust him. Why could they trust him? Because he had been faithful to his promises in the past. What he had done in the past, he had performed. So clear over in chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Israel returns back to God. They plead with God to take them back. Look at verse 4. God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from me. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches branches shall spread. His beauty will be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain. They grow and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the vine of Lebanon. God is faithful. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to restore. He is faithful to continue loving us. Verse 8. Ephraim shall say, Ephraim is another term for northern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel. What have I to do with idols anymore? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. 
your fruit is found in me. As a group, they say, I will, we will not turn to idols again. We will not forget about the love and faithfulness of God. So in verse 9, what can others learn? What can we learn from this example? Verse 9, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. God loves us. And that love for us will never end, no matter what happens, no matter what we do. There may be consequences, but that does not mean that God does not love us. We often use the phrase with our children, right? When you're spanking them. I know that's a dirty word in our communities now. When we're spanking them, I'm doing this because I love you. God loves us even when he chastises. He is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Man is not consistent throughout our lives. Our love for each other can disappoint and our love for God can fall short. We cannot always be counted on to be faithful to the promises that we make. We often fail the hope that others may have in us. So why is Jesus, why is God always the same? His love has been the same from the beginning, and he will continue to love us throughout eternity. He has never been unfaithful to his word. Man has always been able to have a confident hope in his love and in what he has promised. As God's children, how can we hope to match or emulate this love and this faithfulness in our lives? Since faith Since faith in man is often unrewarded because of our failures, we must learn to reflect the faithfulness of God to the world around us. Since our love often falls short of not only the expectations of those around us, but also our own expectations, we must learn to reflect the love of God to the world around us. This takes effort. This takes knowledge because the love of God is powerful and it's not like human love. The faithfulness of God is continual and never ceases. That's not like man. But we need to implant those ideas in our hearts. We need to be willing to love even when the other person does not love us back. We need to be willing to be be able to be faithful to our promises, to swear to our own hurt and still perform it. If we can do those two things, that brings us closer 
to being one with God through his love and continual faithfulness. I see them coming back, so we're going to end there. Thank you for your attention.